brief insight into the process that goes on from my end. I usually do these ruminations in spurts because I have so much streaming that I do as well. And obviously a day I spend streaming is a day I cannot spend recording. Or indeed, working on the prep work for recording. So I usually go back and forth. Anytime I'm not spending streaming, I'm spending working on this. But that also means when I do something major, like a lore run, it means I have a large period of time where I don't work on, you know, the YouTube side of things. I bring that up because it's actually been close to a month and a half, probably closer to like four and a half weeks, something like that, since, or I guess five weeks now, since I just, I saw episode two, the one before this, uh, which I think was The Circle, I don't, I don't even remember, the one that went live last week. So I just jump into this and I'm like, okay, okay, hang on, hang on. I ended up kind of blipping through the last episode just to kind of help myself remind myself of where I was and try to catch my thoughts again. Which brings me to something that I may have mentioned over the last two weeks, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but I really feel like it needs to be said, because this episode really made it, just, just hammered the point home for me. It feels like Deep Space Nine, as of now, here, Season 2, Episode 3, is trying to find itself and failing and succeeding at the same time. It feels like this is a heavily political story with the potential long-term ramifications and it is built off of the build-up that's been happening across season one. You know, there's a lot of setting continuity involved. There's a lot of establishment going on. You know, there's a lot of character dynamic. There's a large cast. You can see a lot of the pieces of what Deep Space Nine is and will become here in this episode. But it feels like they haven't discovered that fact yet and they're still trying things to see what sticks. That's just my opinion on it. I have no evidence of that. I would be curious what you guys think, especially after having gone through the three more back-to-back -back than I did. But I will say uh, one thing that did kind of irritate me about this episode, and that would be Deep Space Nine. Every Star Trek has cliches. Everything has cliches. But when I think of cliches of Deep Space Nine, the one that comes to my mind most often is the... All right, we need to go do this thing. It's not allowed by Starfleet. It's against Starfleet regulations. However, it is the right thing to do. Remember, do not volunteer to do this. Don't be so hasty to volunteer. This is not something you should volunteer, etc., etc., etc. Unless you're really, really sure. I bet you know what I'm talking about. They do this a lot in this show, uh, at least for the first four or so seasons. It's a kind of a recurring theme. And I mentioned that because the moment they started doing the we must do the right thing against Starfleet regulations scene, I'm, my actual gut reaction was, oh, God, really? Really? Not again? Wait, this is the first time they've done this. And I realized I think this is legitimately the first time they've done this. What's most interesting to me about this is this is actually a far more complicated political scenario than it looks like. What's also weird is that the dilemma was resolved politically. Like, yeah, they held the line and managed to keep them off the station for a while. But what actually ended up changing things around was them saying, Hey, we have evidence. Now, I understand the significance and the difficulty of that evidence being presented. But at the same time, and God, I, I hate to keep bringing up this point, and I know... Several of you in, in chat, in, or not in chat, excuse me, in the comments section, I've been streaming a lot lately, 
have been disagreeing with me on this point, but I continue to find it unbelievable how little Starfleet is actually supporting, or in other words, providing support for the Deep Space Nine scenario. Wouldn't it be relatively easy to have, oh, I don't know, one medium-sized cruiser, like assigned to the sector, so that something like this pops up and they'd be like, you know, because politically, the whole point is, well, the Federation's being kicked off because the government wants us kicked off. That makes sense. However, we're pretty sure there's a third party intervening in the internal politics of Bajor. Now, we know, provably, that that's something that the Federation is okay with intervening in, to prevent intervention from another party. We saw that in the episode's redemption back in TNG, right? So, you'd think it would be within Federation policy and regulations to say, oh, hang on, hang on, we have some other evidence to, to present to you. Now, yes, that maybe that wouldn't be, be received as well as it is, but my point is, anything that might make that evidence less likely to be received is the exact same as what actually happened. The only reason that... I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this wrong. The Federation, the Federation, the Bajoran government would be equally as uh, hesitant to accept in evidence from a Nebula-class ship that goes over and beams down and says, hey, we got some evidence, as to Kira and Dax literally sneaking into a meeting that they are not allowed to be in to present their evidence. Equally, right? So, god damn it, Federation. I know it's the frontier, but Jesus, don't you have one ship you can assign out here? Just one? Uh, I mean, they're still using runabouts. It's actually a, a, a plot point and a character point that they literally don't have enough seats to get people off the station because all they got is their freaking runabouts. Uh, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not even mad at the episode per se, although this is arguably the fault of the writers, because to my knowledge this has never bothered to be explained in lore. They never bothered to say, and the Federation decided to be complete incompetent boobs because... dot dot dot. No, they never do that. It's just, screw it, it's Deep Space Nine, right? We don't need ships out in Deep Space, even though it's very close to the border of a hostile enemy and right next to one of the most important and valuable pieces of real estate in the Quadrant. The Alpha Quadrant specifically, not the Beta Quadrant. And there's <laughs> potentially volatile political situations going on that might need, um, you know, at the very least, defending Federation citizens, if nothing else. I mean, God's sakes, you realize what kind of a power play the Bajorans were pulling here, right? They said, get off the station, we're coming to retake it. They gave him a deadline. That deadline was way too short. And again, no ships, they just have the runabouts, and they don't have enough people to get on those ships. Now, yes, I know, it's possible that there's enough room on those three runabouts to fit just the Federation personnel. Possible. I don't actually believe that personally, because Deep Space Nine is ginormous. Like, you've seen a galaxy class next to this thing. This is a large space station. It's not hard for me to believe that there's a lot of people on it. So, <clears throat> three little buses, basically, is probably, I will admit probably, not enough to get them off here. Now, again, I don't think this is a writer's issue, other than the fact that the Federation's incompetent. I think that this is a power play on behalf of the new military-enforced uh, military circle government. Get the hell off here. We're taking it. Now, it's funny because that's actually incredibly stupid, if you think about it. The Federation being asked to leave, yeah, okay, fine. 
Federation people being taken hostage, which is probably what would have happened, well, that gets a lot less pleasant, doesn't it? Remember, this is a coup, a military coup, and military coups are not simple, normal, peaceful transferences of power. In the previous episodes, we actually heard fire in the distance from artillery shots, for God's sakes. Right? Uh, anyways. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was deliberate, and I think they were idiots for it. And I'd like to point to Colonel Day for that. And the only reason I know that name is because he's a very recurring character in the episode, and they say his name several times. You know it's weird when I remember a one-off character's name. Colonel Day is Colonel Moron. No, seriously. Near as I can tell, his primary character trait is being an idiot. He is incredibly ambitious, but also very, very stupid. Let me give you a direct one-to-one, actually one-to-two, comparison of just how stupid Colonel Day is. So first they invade, and Colonel Day is like, Ha-ha! I knew the Federation would run with their tail between their legs. Now, first of all, the way he's saying that is stupid. He is implying that the Federation is scared of Bajor. Bajor. Ah, <laughs> we beat the Federation! No. No. The grown-ups are talking now, Colonel Day. Please be silent. Second thing is he automatically assumes that everyone just bailed. That everyone is just, ha-ha, they somehow managed to evacuate and everything's cool. Which is stupid. Then it is the general who points out how, you know, that's unlikely. Then later on, the general rather accurately gives... The general is actually pretty competent throughout the whole episode. He's like, all right, I want security scans for biological matter or anything within the area. Six times an hour, randomly keep it going. And then he kind of plays a waiting game while the colonel's like, we should go send out men. I know we have all our men concentrated in one spot and that makes us stronger, but we should divide them so that they're easier targets for any saboteurs. It's not like Bajorans. Sorry, I I emphasized that wrong. It's not like Bajorans would have any knowledge or concept of guerrilla warfare. No, no. Let's just go spread out, make sure our, our patrols are as light as possible. God. Damn, dude. There's actually a great line where Colonel Day's like, why are you doing this? And the general says, oh, because I understand military tactics. And he says it so calmly. It's like the best burn in the whole episode. Just, yeah, no. I know what I'm doing. Thanks. Then, (laughs) to continue with Colonel Day's moronicisms, later on he's like, oh, oh my God, look. One of the hollow suites is in is in use. Ha <laughs> I've caught you. It's definitely not a trap. Oh, oh, it is a trap. Oh, gosh. I didn't see that coming from a mile away. Oh, now they're telling me information. Oh, well, it's clearly a Federation lie. Doesn't even think about it. Doesn't even, just not Federation lies. Whatever, stupid people. Then he's beamed up to the bridge. And then he lies to the general. Now, that's an interesting one to me. This is officially the moment where he goes past being stupid and into, I'm surprised he can tie his shoes in the morning. Yes, I know there's no shoelaces in the the future. It's okay, he tries anyways. Because the motivations behind not sharing any of that information with the general are highly suspect. There is effectively no reason to share that unless you are the kind of person who is okay with the possibility of Cardassians backing your military coup so long as you end up in a position of slightly greater power. 
That's the mentality. That's the best I've got for this guy. If you assume he doesn't believe the Cardassian allegations, then he would just bring them up. Yeah, they just told me some Cardassian crap, whatever. You know, and that would be the end of it. Or if he believed it, but he was actually in on it, that would actually make more sense. But by all accounts, he is just that stupid. That he is so self-centered and so self-interested that he is totally cool with lying to everyone involved. Like, yeah, no, no. I, I promised them amnesty. That's why they let me go. <laughs> yeah. That's why um, nothing that would be involved in that amnesty or communication therewith has happening at all. <laughs> then he tries to shoot Cisco for what amounts to no reason other than you took my ball away and now I'm upset. It's really interesting, by the way. I haven't talked much about the general. He's good. I like the general. He's cool. But I don't have much to say about that other than he's cool. But I do like the fact that the general admits, I will be asked to resign. And he accepts that. There, <laughs> I mean, I, the sad thing is this is almost bad writing because the general is portrayed to be the good guy and the colonel is portrayed to be the bad guy. And they go just a little bit too far in both directions. The general is totally okay with, well, I shouldn't say totally okay, but he is willing to accept his, his failure and his removal from the military with, with some measure of dignity. The colonel, who hasn't even been threatened with that, is willing to murder a man because... There's, no, there's nothing he'll get out of that. It won't improve his situation. It's just a screw you before he's tossed into prison for the rest of his life. Because before he might have kept his position, at worst he might have been removed from the military. If he had murdered, well, I guess I shouldn't say, he, he did kill someone, but if he had killed Cisco, yeah, he's, he's not going to be coming out really good out of that. No, instead he killed Lee Nollis. You know, the Bajoran hero that everyone venerates to the point of, of idyllicism. Of, of, of I, almost idolatry, not, not, not um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, whatever, they venerate him, right? It starts with an I, I can't think of it. They venerate the hell out of him. He is now the man who murdered, murdered, I want to really make that word clear, Lee Nollis. Yeah, he's getting beaten to death by people's bare hands. <laughs> Freaking moron. Now that I've cut to the very end of the episode, let's rewind a little bit here. Let's talk about Quark. Let's talk about how Quark is pretty out of character in this episode, I would think. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Quark certainly isn't a good person, but he I would argue very strongly that he is not an evil person. And yet what he does in this episode is pretty much flat-out evil. He abandons people. Note that both he and Rom seem to have the implications that if they'd stay behind, they're gonna die. Now, whether that's true or not, who freaking knows, but that is at least their mentality. Therefore, overbooking on seats means people are gonna stay behind to die. Selling seats around means people are gonna stay behind to die, profiting off of literal death, at least in their mind. Now, you could wean your way around this. You could argue around this. But for me, this is a couple steps over the line for Quark. And it actually bothers me. Especially because he tries to defend it later. This is even more egregious 
when you take it into immediate contrast with Nog and Jake, which is one of the next scenes that happens, where Nog and Jake have a pretty heartwarming and awesome little scene together. It's their only real scene together. In fact, it's Nog's only scene in the episode. Although, that is DS9's strength. You know, having everyone be involved at least a little bit, that whole ensemble cast thing. So, like I said, they are kind of experimenting with a few things and starting to find out where their strengths are. And we do have a bit of that ensemble thing going on. But... I also want to contrast it to Quark later, when another invasion happens. I'm going to try to keep spoilers on the download, but I bet most of you know what I'm talking about. And Quark is like, yeah, no, I'm going to stay behind. Of course I'm going to freaking stay behind. i got a bar to tend. Now, granted, you could argue that Quark grew up to that, but this is season two. Quark has already had a reasonable amount of characterization up till now. He is more than willing to profit off the situation, and he is more than willing to be kind of a bastard to do it. But to the point of actually getting people killed or putting people in mortal danger? Can't buy it. I'm reminded of an earlier episode where, where Odo asks Quark about a murder. And Quark says, Odo, I don't do that. Killing, murders, not my bag. And Odo says, oh, I know, I know. I was just wondering if you'd heard anything. That was earlier than this. <laughs> Anyways, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I do find it very, very interesting how many Bajorans are leaving. Or wanting to leave, I should say, until Lee, Naris, uh, Lee Nallis... Lee... Shoot, Neil Hollis? Oh, God, I forgot his name. The guy. I think it's Lee Nallis. God, I just watched this episode. Lee Nallis steps up and is like, What are you freaking doing? And gives a dramatic speech, and they all agree to stay. Which is good. I'm not making fun of it. My first thought was, God, what the hell? But then I started, to, I started to think about it for a moment. Imagine for a moment that you're part of group A. Maybe it's a gender. Maybe it's a species. Maybe it's a culture. Maybe it's a political affiliation. Doesn't matter, okay? You're part of group A. But you're normal. <laughs> you know what I mean. You're everyday. You're not military. You're not, you're not a politician. You're not an elite commando. You, you, you tend to shop where you sell jum-jum berries or whatever, right? So... You have found out that other people of Group A have decided to launch a military coup which is going to be sweeping the place you live at. And you have the option to leave. Hence, them trying to leave makes a lot more sense to me once I actually sat and thought about it. Because, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't think I would want to have anything to do with that. I don't know about you guys. It also makes sense, too, if you consider that some of these people might not consider themselves part of Group A, that many of them might not agree with the military coup, regardless of the Cardassian connection, that some of them might be adamantly opposed to it, that some of them might you know, fear the, the return of a military regime in being in charge of their lives. Lord knows most living Bajorans, in fact, I would go so far as to say the overwhelming amount of living Bajorans at this point in history know what it's like to live under a military regime. Because their Cardassians basically just left just about a year ago. Right? <sighs> now, then, then the episode makes a point of laughing at Quark. Ha ha, Rom sold him out to die. Ha ha ha, isn't that funny? And that brings me to the point I'm trying to build up to here. And this is where I feel this episode really falls flat. 
15 minutes and 10 seconds are spent on the evacuation. That may not sound like a lot, but that's roughly a third of the entire episode. 33% of the whole episode is spent on the evacuation. And the connections between the people, the character moments, the planning, you know, Quark's thing, um, the Nog and the Jake scene, all of that stuff. There's even a great scene that I'm kind of skipping over between O'Brien and Keiko. And it is a great scene. In fact, it's even better because it's not actually resolved. O'Brien doesn't win that argument, and neither does she. Kind of like real marriages. So, a lot of great character stuff there, but a huge amount is just devoted to something that is something that will be undone literally at the end of the episode. And that's where I feel like they were failing. Because there's two big failing points here for me, if you'll forgive me. Failing point number one is the temperance of it. The fact that it's like, alright, so... We're going to evacuate, and, and they make big, dramatic, sweeping things, and there's, there's great character moments and all this stuff I just talked about. You know, they make a big deal out of it. They spend a lot of time on it, and they do some good stuff with it, but it's going to be over by the end of the episode. It's, it's, it's really, really hard for me to take a thread of the week seriously, even if you do it well. Now, they do do it well. I, I would go so far as to say this is a good episode, but... <sighs> It's like, I'm just sitting here like, okay, you know, this would work better if, oh, I don't know, they wouldn't be back for several episodes, or even many episodes. And again, <laughs> those of you who've seen this show kind of know what I'm talking about. It's also funny because they spend less time on that evacuation than this one, if you'll remember. The second failing, the second problem here is the fact that they keep trying to inject comedy into it. Mostly with Quark, but there are several scenes of levity throughout, and each one of these scenes of levity really messes with the tone for me. It's hard for me, like, it's not like you can't have levity inside a serious situation, but, you know, like the ration scene later on, which I'll talk about later. You know, that was a moment of levity in a serious situation. But they keep portraying this life-or-death-threatening situation alongside, ha-ha, Cork's gonna die, and the other little tidbits they put. It, it, it didn't gel with me. And again, I feel like this, this is just my opinion, but I really feel like they were just trying to find themselves. So, it's a process, right? And that brings me to my final point. I'm just going to spoil this for you. The effects of this episode basically will not matter ever. Like, there's no real lasting impact for this. And I think that right there is the biggest flaw. It's, it's, it's the aggregate flaw, to use my own terminology here. It's the problem that would earn a negative to the story. Because... If these events resonated in future episodes, a lot of my complaints would fade away. You spend all this time on this, and then they come back. Why not have like a subplot of, of Jake being freaked out about the fact that he had to leave his home again? You already planted the seeds for that. Why not have things where Nog starts to more easily sympathize with Jake, even regardless of whether Jake's freaking out or not, because Nog doesn't want to lose the only friend he's ever had and values that friendship, right? You don't have to make these main plots, just have them in the background. It's not like DS9 isn't good at that. DS9 is great at that, right? That's just off the top of my head right now. I didn't even prep that. There are tons of things, tons of ways you can make this matter in the future. Dynamics between Kira and Dax, or maybe the, the way in which uh, Kai Wynn kind of starts to finagle her way into the good graces of, of Kira and, and the good guys in general. Or maybe 
add, add some of the Cardassian perspective onto this. We, be, we know the Cardassians are the suppliers. I'll get to that later, by the way. But we don't learn anything about the specifics of which Cardassian faction was in favor of this. Remember, there are effectively three Cardassian factions right now. And they boil down to the military, the civilians, and the spies. You know, we've got the, uh, the Tape? God, I can never remember how they pronounce it. Um, the actual military council, and then the freaking Obsidian Order. And all three of those are kind of at odds with each other. So who was behind this and why? Have, have that have impact on the future, right? After the failed attempt by Gull blah blah blah, who we've thrown onto the bus to try and influence Bajoran political affairs, do not worry, he has been tried in a Cardassian jury and been found guilty and blah 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 and sentenced to death. I mean, in a show that is stronger about continuity than virtually any other Star Trek, it feels like these three episodes exist in a bubble. And that's what bothers me. Because... Remember, the only thing that stopped this coup was the Cardassian influence. In fact, to be completely blunt, if everyone involved was thinking logically, that influence should not have stopped the coup. What, and I mean that with total sincerity. If you, think, if you sit back, put yourself into the, the Crusader Kings 2 mindset, or whatever you want to think of that as, and start thinking about this politically, the coup is still a thing. Remember... Jaro probably didn't even know about this. Most people didn't even know they were being supplied by the Cardassians. So this was an effort they made f f about ideals they really did believe in, for mentalities they really did believe in, for, for whatever political stance they had. Right? There's no particular reason they couldn't still win and still be in charge of the government. It's just they'd probably then have the brains to invite the Federation back so that the Cardassians don't swoop in. Now, the funny thing is, the Cardassians backed this so that the Federation would be kicked out and the Cardassians could swoop in. Thing is, that would happen in any circumstance in which the Federation is kicked out. So, if there is no known Cardassian connection, why was the Federation kicked out? Everyone knows if the Federation is kicked out, the Cardassians come back. That was a plot point in the second episode of the entire series. Hell, it was arguably a plot point in the premiere. Based on that, I've heard some people argue that Minister Jara was aware of the Cardassian influence and that he was just going along with it because, hey, he'd get a bigger scrumpful power. Which brings me to Minister Jaro. Now, Minister Jaro's an interesting character for me because he is what I would call an amateur politician. Now, I don't actually mean that as an insult, as it probably sounds like. What I mean is, some people can negotiate or maneuver socially, culturally, economically, politically, in other words, in every way except for directly, if they have the advantages, if they have the superior standing. It is, to be blunt, easier to negotiate the end of a war when you've won, or when you have the bigger army, right? A good politician is the kind of person who can negotiate when they're on the other side, when they have actually successfully lost a war, or when they don't have those advantages. That's the distinction I'm trying to make here, okay? I've, I've mentioned this several times in fiction before. Now, and I try not to use real-life examples for obvious reasons. Please, no real-life examples in comments. So, Minister Jaro 
at first you'd look at him as like, man, he's really manipulating all these people into position. And yet, when you think about it, he is a complete amateur. He is banking everything on what amounts to his superior firepower. And he keeps ignoring that, or he is actually complicit on it, take your pick. Because he just keeps making broad, sweeping measures. When you have an infinite bank account, it's easy to bribe someone. Because you don't care how much you pay for it, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? So you can just be like, plonk. Hey, yeah, so uh, here's $50,000. Go away. Right? It's easy to do that when you have that superior backing. And he has all of this firepower, which they never state this outright, but it's heavily implied they got this on the cheap. Like, really cheap. And it's good firepower, good weapons, good armaments. They have successfully bought their way into a militarily superior position. And it's with that advantage that Jaro is, is negotiating. He flat out says, I'm willing to offer him anything, uh, I'm willing to offer him anything he wants except for the position of Kai, which is going to go to win. Which is also what he offered her. You see what I mean by this perspective of, of negotiating from strength? Nowhere is this made more apparent than the end when uh, Kira approaches with the evidence. We see then the difference between a politician who can negotiate from strength and one who can negotiate when they have lost. Now, this isn't a perfect parallel, but I do think it is apt considering what we know about the rest of the franchise, because Kai Win, or excuse me, Adama Win, I keep forgetting that, or is it Win Adama? <sighs> Evil McEvilface pretty much instantly realizes that the tides have changed and that the winds have shifted, and she immediately says, okay, and sides with Kira, renegotiates herself into that position, and as a Vedic, vocally gives her support for going ahead and examining the evidence instantly. And then the others start to kind of go in favor of that because she has now taken that first step. And it then takes several more seconds for the amateur politician, Jaro, to realize, oh, yes, of course, of course we shall examine the evidence that I previously was demanding be taken out of here by force. Yes, of course I'm okay with that, and obviously I would be completely in favor of this investigation. That's what we call too little too late. Even politically, that's a one. Sorry, what I mean is like rolling a one on a d20. I'm a geek. What do you want from me? So it was interesting to see that dynamic, or I should say that contrast, between Win and Jaro. She is much better at the game than he is, which of course makes her a lot more dangerous. It's probably also why she became a recurring character and he did not. Now, I mentioned earlier the political ramifications of this. The funny thing is, it makes perfect sense in character that the coup would completely fall apart the moment Cardassian influence gets involved. It's easy to understand why. Because every Bajoran, <laughs> to some extent or another, hates the Cardassians. They may not hate individual Cardassians. You know, we've seen Kira kind of try to move past that bias in previous episodes. But the Cardassians as an organization, ah, screw them damn Cardies, right? So, the moment you find out that a political or military movement has been backed by the Cardassians, that movement's gone. Like the Circle, there's a reason we never really hear from the Circle again. They disintegrate after this. They are tainted forever. I wouldn't be surprised if some people of the Circle were literally mugged or hanged, or tried and sentenced to life in prison, or whatever, whether vigilante or le uh, legislative ju justice, 
was put upon them because they hate the Cardassians. And that's even funnier when you consider most of them probably weren't aware of the connection. Which brings me to another point. It would have been interesting to me, and obviously this is not how this is structured at all, if the Cardassians willingly put their support by someone in a clandestine way, but hoping it would be found out in order to tarnish a particular group, knowing the way the Bajorans would react to that. That's how you'd really manipulate that situation. Imagine if the good guys, or whatever you want to call them, obviously the circle are a bunch of terrorist freaks, but imagine if you had a good guy faction of the Bajorans, and they're gaining more support, and they've got these funds, and they've got these supplies, and, by the way, they're being supplied by the Cardassians. That's the end of that group. <laughs> yeah. Anyways... <clears throat> God, I'm, I'm kind of going everywhere in my notes here. Forgive me. I love Deep Space Nine. It's great to talk about it. I, I'm glad for your indulgence on this. I guess I'm going to just skip down a little bit. I've talked about the General. I've talked about the Jaro. Uh, I, I want to talk about rations. I know this is a weird thing to touch on, but hear me out. One of the things I've always liked to think is that when greed and quarterly profit reports are removed from the equation, I'd link to think we'd accomplish some really awesome things in real life. Now, I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say, and very idealistic and very stupid, and that's okay, you can totally think that. But let me explain my perspective slightly differently. If you are playing a game of civilization or whatever, you are interested in the, well, assuming you're a decent person and not a horrible monster, you are interested in the well-being of your civilization as an aggregate, right? I mean, that makes a degree of sense. So even if you pick, tick the, the, the checkbox that says free market, you are still trying to make things and design things that are good, well-designed, and accomplish their function, right? Now, that's not how that works in real life. The United States, or Britain, or Germany, or Russia, or Australia, or Wakanda, do not actually sit down and say, we want to make a frozen meal that actually contains proper nutritional value and still tastes good. I almost guarantee that that kind of technology is in our grasp now. It'd probably be expensive. I would imagine it would be expensive. I don't actually know. I'm still guessing here. But I'd like to think that we could make those kinds of things now. Now, probably not to the extent of Star Trek. You know, that whole three-day time-release ration thing. That sounds awesome. I would love to have that in real life. Are you kidding me? When I'm doing my long, you know, week-long lore run streams, that'd be great to just om nom nom and not have to think about eating for the next couple of days. I'm sure some of you could see circumstances for wanting that too. But we don't have that. We have stuff that's designed to either taste good or be cheap or both, and or be, you know, long-term preservatable. Things that are going to be make more money rather than things that are going to be a good product. And that's why I mentioned that earlier thing. This isn't me trying to preach, by the way. This is just me saying how, how this is something I've considered before and how awesome it would be if there was like somewhere where I could just go buy legitimately awesome food that is designed to be really awesome food rather than to make money out of me, you know? Because I would totally buy the hell out of those rations. <laughs> Another point I want to bring up, though. Anybody who's been in uh, any kind of military service at all, even like something like uh, the National Guard at least here in the States, always has the same thing to say about the rations. They're terrible. I've actually tried some myself. I agree, they're terrible. Now, they are very, very efficient. They do actually accomplish a lot of things nutritional, but they are basically like eating death in, in, in like little wafer tack form or whatever you want to call that. I don't even know what to call that. Biscuits, maybe? I don't know. 
I bring this up, though, because one of the things I've heard from a lot of people is that you get used to it. You kind of get acclimated to it. And I can speak to my personal experience of exactly what that's like. I ate paper for a period of my life. Don't ask. But I love the idea that O'Brien, someone who spent his, his time, metaphorically speaking, in the trenches, would grow to like the rations, and especially as an engineer, would grow to appreciate them, even admire them. Then we have Bashir's comment. I'm not going to spoil anything. All I'm going to say is that I find it really amusing that Bashir was able to make something that does the same thing that tasted good. Because, God's sakes, you'd think the Federation would be able to make really good food that tastes good. Now, yes, I know it's kind of a recurring theme that they actually brought up in Deep Space Nine and nowhere else that uh, real food tastes better than replicated food. We'll talk about that when we get there. Let, let's just leave that for later. That's, I don't think that's related to this particular comment. Um... <sighs> I'm looking at my notes here about the rations to see if I missed anything. And one of the th notes here is that Colonel Day really is an idiot. <laughs> uh, so then I don't have much to say about Kira and uh, Dax's sequences. It's, it's good stuff. They have decent chemistry, not the best. Um, apparently it was really rough for both actresses because it was a really unpleasant work environment working in this tiny, tiny little thing where stuff was constantly happening around them. Um, so props to them on that one. And um, I'm just looking at this stuff here. So, yeah, it looks like we're pretty much towards the end. So I want to mention uh, two last things. Looks like I want to talk about Burial. I want to talk about Lee, uh, Lee Nollis. God, I hope I'm getting that name right. I should just look up his name. Hang on, hang on. What's your name? I'm so stupid, I can't even remember a name of an episode I just watched. It is Lee Nollis. I am correct. God, stop doubting yourself, Laura. Lee Nollis <clears throat> is who I'll talk about second. I want to talk about uh, Burial first. Because I mentioned earlier that Vedic Burial is still a politician. That he still plays at politics. He's just not incredibly selfish or evil about it. Like someone else I could mention. Now... <clears throat> I actually agree with that. Well, obviously I agree with my own statement, but it's interesting to see him here wholeheartedly throw his support behind this gesture. Now, this is probably my cynicism peeking through here, but what I am seeing is a man who legitimately believes this, and who legitimately believes this needs to happen, but is enough of a politician to want to be the one to bring out the news. People are not going to soon forget that Vedic Burial was the one who bravely sheltered the, the you know, Kira, hero of Bajorans, and, uh, and Dax, a Starfleet personnel, into the assembly so that the true nature of the Cardassian involvement could be brought to light. He's going to get some brownie points from this, is what I'm trying to say. And I actually like that about his character. It is very rare we see someone who is politically inclined, you know, who thinks like a politician, who is also generally a decent person. It's a very rare character type. And the last thing I want to talk about is Lee Nollis. Who dies? I think it's a shame he died. Let me just go ahead and say that really quick. I think his death, like I know some of the writers, multiple of the writers have given their own thoughts on this, both for and against it. For me, I think his death was correct thing from an out-of-character perspective and the incorrect thing from an in-character perspective. Out of character, this is Season 2 DS9, which is being crafted when Season 1 was still kind of coming out. Because, you know, you do stuff in advance, kind of like I'm doing right now. So, 
it's pretty normal to not really be sure of how, like, if your show is going to really be doing well, where your budget's going to be at, etc. So their perspective was very simple. We're not sure we can bring him back. We're not sure we're literally going to be able to afford to bring Lee Nollis back as a recurring guest star. So we have to kill him off. Otherwise, it's just this giant plot hole we're leaving there. You know, what's going on with Lee Lawless in the background, right? Thing is, and, and again, that was the correct choice. It's the same choice I would have made for the same reason. I'll, I'll admit that freely. Thing is, DS9 later solidified its budget to do well. And so they brought in a character named Shakar. Some of you probably know who I'm talking about already. Shakar is Lee Nollis in everything except for name. He is literally designed to be Lee Nollis 2.0. He, in fact, his role in those episodes, he's in three episodes, I want to say, was, is, is clearly designed in a way that you could see why Lee Nollis was supposed to be the person in those episodes. And I think that's a damn shame, because there was no real way they could have predicted that. And now you can see why I could say from a purely creative perspective, I think killing him off was the mistake. Especially since Cisco's speech to him was dead on. It is easy, relatively speaking, to die for your cause, to die for your people. But it is a lot harder to keep living for them. And that's basically been his character arc this entire time. The man who has to man up and accept something that he finds despicable, that is a lie, in order to be able to accomplish good with it. The tools have already been hoist upon him. He didn't want them. He didn't want this. But now that he has it, do something with it. And we've seen this as his character arc throughout these episodes, and it really comes through in this one when all the Bajorans are trying to leave earlier, as I mentioned. And he gets out there and he, he just says, Hey, where are you going? <laughs> and he gives, this, he gives a pretty good speech, too. And you could see how he is now prepared to use his fame, his name, his resonance, his charisma, he does have some decent charisma, as a tool to try and accomplish good for Bajorans. And then he dies. <sighs> Anyways, I get it. I get it. I don't have much else to share. It's funny. When I was talking about this episode to a, well, a viewer of mine, um, he didn't recognize it when I mentioned it in its plot. Because it wasn't really that memorable. And I think this ties back into my earlier point about how this episode just isn't actually all that memorable. Because it didn't impact anything long term. A pity... But, still enjoyable, and we do know DS9 learns their lesson in the end, so that's nice. But for now, I will be seeing you guys with a completely unrelated episode next week.